So as Katie mentioned just a moment ago, these are tough texts sometimes. Even just thinking about temptation can be an awkward thing. When we read the story, and Bill, I appreciate your full implication in Adam, in the earth man there. Um, As I mentioned on Wednesday night, the translation in Hebrew of Adam is earth man, earth person. I feel it's helpful to understand that as we're talking about these stories, because the people who wrote these stories understood that this is part of what it is to be human, that we are made of the earth. Eve is translated to mother or life. And so it's important that as we talk about these stories that we understand their universal nature and that we also name when they're difficult and that we sit with that and kind of sit a little bit to tease out what's going on there. I just remembered I did not pray and I would very much like to do that. So if you can pause for a moment and let's pray real quick. Holy God, we thank you. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your presence in the wilderness. And we thank you for the wilderness because we know that so often when we are in that space, it is when we feel the presence of you most strongly. And in that sense, we also thank you for our desperation, for our longing, for our hunger and thirst to see you and to feel your presence. Now may you put into my mouth the words you would have me speak and take from my mouth those you would not. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me on that. It feels better, just in general, to get myself a little bit out of the way, so thank you. So as I was saying, I would like to, though, spend a little bit of time with Genesis, but I really want to get into Matthew. But I feel like I want to spend a little bit of time with Genesis because this is a text that has been so harmfully misconstrued in a way that really kind of leaves us feeling like it's difficult to talk about sin or temptation. Like it's difficult for us to talk about us as humans, as people, as part of this earth, as if we don't mess up all the time. This text has somehow, in the way that I think has been misread, has taught us that we are kind of worthless, that God has put us here on this planet, and that we don't even from the get-go have the capacity to actually live here. Somehow it can somehow, at least for me, leave the implication that are we not being set up? I mean, these are the first people. And also I will name fully that these are metaphors. These are people, these are stories, these are ideological creation stories. How do we understand who we are? And what this story, I think, tells us in a broader sense, I think we really can broadly understand it more if we don't think about these two individuals that we want to go back and blame. If only Eve or Adam had done the right thing, then we wouldn't be in this mess of humanity. We miss the point then. We miss the point in the same way that when, we, when we, we do this on the other end, when we say that Jesus is, we lift him up so, so high, not saying we shouldn't, but we miss that he was human. We miss that Jesus was just as human as you and I. When you read the story of Adam and Eve, a lot of times if you read it in like a Jewish or Hebraic understanding, it's commonly understood that this is just what happens, that this is just the consequence of what it is to be living in these bodies with a sense of separateness. I'll say a sense of separateness because we are not separate. But what comes with this sense of separateness is this awareness of death, this awareness of pain, this awareness of suffering. I would say these perceived awarenesses. But this is the world in which we live. With these perceived, we're born into these bodies. We're told that we are separate from one another. Because if you look, I'm separate. I'm separate from Jen. I'm separate from Katie. I'm separate. We are separate. But... I think what these stories are telling us 
is to recognize that even though we see ourselves in these different bodies, in these different particular experiences, that the experience that we are having is all one human experience, one part of creation. It comes with it that as you age, think about even within your own life, if you were three years old, you don't have the same awareness of the world that you have at 33. Some of us might say, oh, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness, because when I was three, I didn't have a clue. But I did. We do. We have a clue. We do have a sense. Anyone who spent time with three-year-olds can watch them crawling, can watch them learning, can watch them watching one another. The thing is that as we get older, we live in this world, and more and more, depending on the messages that we hear, but many of us are told more and more that we need to buck up, that we need to take care of ourselves, that we need to be responsible, that we need to feel bad. So we come to spaces where we're maybe affirmed, but then we go back out into the world that just tells us all those things again and again, and we think that we have scripture to back it up. But what if scripture is here just telling us that part of what it is to be human is to experience pain? Part of what it is to be human is to have loss. Part of what it is to be human is to feel separate from one another, even when God is beckoning for us. Part of what it is to be human is to try to reconcile how we do what we do with the realization on a deep, deep level that we are loved and held. It pivots it for me a little bit. I feel a little less shame when I realize that part of what it is to be human is to mess up. Part of what it is to be human is to hurt people, to be hurt by people. I find that when I name those things, right, that I realize that's not all it is to be human. Because part of what it is to be human is to also be loved, to love other people, to experience joy, to experience rest and peace. Those things are part of it. But if we spend all our time and energy feeling like crud because we're not doing enough, not being enough, we forget this. And sometimes we might get so caught up in feeling terrible that we forget that we were created for joy, in love. We miss that. So I'd like for us to, as we engage with Jesus in Matthew, to remember that part of what it is to be human is to experience those things. Now, I think a lot as I'm saying this, I have this connection to this understanding of Buddhism, right? This recognition that life is suffering and that it's our fault and that we can get over that. And that part of to do that is to just acknowledge and to accept it. I think there's actually a strong overlap here. I think just in the West, we've been so hustled out of that that we miss that they're saying the same thing here. Part of what it is to be human is to suffer. That is, I think, it is to suffer as long as we get ourselves caught in this trap of separation, of sin. And that's where we get to the story of Jesus. Because when we talk about sin... I think it's really important that we tease out what is it Jesus is being tempted into here. What is the sin that he is tempted, that the, 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 the devil, that the tempter is sort of bringing? The first one is to feed himself in the desert. The second is to command Oh, wait, it's all the heavens, right? All the, all the hosts, right? To actually have all of those people. The second is to actually leap and to trust to trust that, that whatever it is will hold him. To trust that he can jump off even the highest pinnacle and will be saved. The third is to actually bring all people to him. 
If someone were to come and say, if you could have all of these people profess the name of Jesus, would we be tempted to do that? We may be tempted. In fact, I think we have centuries of evidence that that Christians have been tempted to do that. We have fought, we have killed, we have raped and pillaged and destroyed in the name of Jesus. We have given in to that temptation. We have sinned. Historically, also we sin every day. That's part of it part of recognizing that we are always going to have these things that separate us from God. Now, when I say sin here, I don't mean that we're going to do all of these things that are going to be up. I don't mean that. I do not mean anything that is going to give you a reason to feel like crud. Feeling like crud is not the point. Recognizing that you can do these things, that you can be so tempted to pull away from the presence of God that is within you all the time, is the sin. So it's not necessarily about chocolate, Because I don't know a whole lot of people who are like, gosh, if chocolate didn't exist, I would not have temptation. That's missing the point. If cookies, I love cookies. If cookies, but instead ask yourself, what is it about chocolate? What is it about that thing that's telling me that if I indulge in that, that I'm lost? And that's where it gets tricky because that's where we start getting into societal expectations of us. I don't want to eat chocolate because I don't want to gain weight. Why don't you want to gain weight? Well, because we live in a society that has a very specific idea about what it is to be healthy. That's not necessarily based on reality all the time. And I was socialized to believe that if I was thin, I was more valuable, which is a lie, which is a lie. And so that's where I think it's important because the things that Jesus is being tempted into are things that we would, by all our standards in our society, were say, like, those are things. Yeah, those are cool. Those are achievements. Those are accomplishments. You have turned stones into bread. You have flown. You have convinced everyone to follow you. Those are achievements. But that's not what this is saying. What Jesus is saying again and again and again is those are illusions. Those are lies. Those are temptations. Is that if I want to actually get to that place, if I want everyone to follow me, then what I am going to do is be present with what is and who I am. I'm going to embody scripture in such a way that I see that it's not about eating the cookies or not eating the cookies, but trusting the God that carries me through it all. As I kept reflecting this week, preparing uh, for preaching this morning, I kept thinking about this book that that I read to my kiddo when they were little that my mom gave me at one point called You Are Special by Max Lucado. Are you all familiar with this book? It's about the Wemmicks. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. The Wemmick. So this is a story. Max Lucado wrote it, who's a Christian author, children's author. You Are Special is the story of the Wemmicks who are all wooden people. They live in a village and they were all made by the same woodcarver named Eli. It's not a subtle message. It's Max Lucado. So it's Eli made them all. And the Wemmicks go around all day putting dots and stars on each other. They put dots on each other when they mess up, when they do something awkward or goofy, make a fool of themselves. They put stars on each other when they do things well. And of course, the protagonist of this story is a Wemmick named Punchinello. And Punchinello has no stars. He's been given dots all his life. So he goes around and he tries to move or tries to do something. He tries to join a group and he messes up. So then they put dots on him and then he stumbles down and they laugh at him and put dots on him again and so then Punchinello starts hanging around people with lots of other dots and he feels better because he's then around other people who have lots of dots but he still feels kind of terrible because he feels like he doesn't have anything worth much. 
So then one day, uh, Punchinello meets this girl who has no dots or stars. And he's like, how'd you do that? And she said, oh, it's simple. I go see Eli every day, and my dots and stars just, they don't stick anymore. People try to put them on me, they don't. They try to put a star on me, it doesn't stick. They try to put it on me, it doesn't stick. So Punchinello is very intrigued, and of course, then he goes to see Eli. And he and Eli talk, and Eli says, gosh, it looks like you have a lot of marks. And Punchinello's like, yeah, but da-da-da. And Eli says, I don't care about that. I don't care about that. I love you. I love you. And he says, and Punchinello says, well, how do I get rid of these dots? And, and Eli says, well, you just keep seeing me. Just keep on coming back and hang out. And so Punchinello then, as he starts to go his own way, he says, okay. And the book says that, you know, as he stepped away, he had this moment of belief that maybe Eli was right and that he was just going to come back to visit again. And then wouldn't you know, like, plink, this little dot falls off. It's the end of the book. It's a lovely story. It's a lovely story when we think about sin and we think about shame and we think about those things we're embarrassed about, that we carry, that we feel like everyone can see, that prevent us from living in relationship with God. And yet what gets me every single time I read this book is that no one is telling those wimmicks who are covered in stars that those stars are just as meaningless as the dots. We've written a book still celebrating those wemmicks going around with stars. And you know, it got me thinking that throughout my life, if I were to think about sin and how I would define it right now, I would say sin is something, like you said, something that pulls my gaze away from who I am. I would say it pulls my internal gaze. It pulls my internal spiritual connection with who I am at the core, which is what connects me with the divine. It pulls me away, pulls me into those things. And so as I reflect on this book and I reflect on my life, I realize that those things so often that I have struggled to overcome, which society often has told me are ugly. And that can be anything, right? That can be things, but whatever those things are, those things that society has told me are ugly, And I will say particularly if people are telling me around my gender identity or my sexual orientation or my gender or even where I grew up, all of those different things, whatever it is that doesn't meet the standard. What I found is that interesting is that those things have actually been, and accepting and seeing those things, have actually been the greatest tools for me in connecting with the divine. The things society says are ugly, but it's actually been the things that society applauds my capacity to do things, right? My intellect, my um, able-bodiedness, my education. It's those things which society says are beautiful. Those have actually been the biggest barriers to me in really feeling the love of God. So what that means is that it's easier for me to accept the part of me that's queer than it is for me to really accept the part of me that has access to wealth. Because I don't want to give up my wealth. I don't want to give up my access to that. Does that make sense? It's like, would I really be here if I hadn't been through all of my education? Would I have my worth or my value if I didn't have two master's degrees and an undergraduate degree? Would I have my worth and value if I didn't have the clothes on my body? If I didn't have access to those things? And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't care about the chocolate. He says that a lot. Because here's the thing is that society is going to tell us enough that the chocolate is the problem. 
What Jesus is saying is that there is no problem here. There is no problem. There is no punishment waiting for you. Your goodness is already here. Jesus is asking you to recognize that, to own that. And the only way you do that is by sitting and being present with it. I know I keep coming back there, but I really do think the only way we do that is by sitting and being present with it. Letting go of the things which tell you anything other than you are holy and beloved by God. And I know that's hard to swallow. Trust me, because I do it every day. I am trying to remember that I am holy and beloved by God. And God does the rest. That's the thing. You don't have to walk on your knees, beating yourself up, feeling terrible. Isaiah says that again and again. That is not what God wants. And also, what good comes from that place anyway? What good decisions do you make when you are feeling like the worst person on the planet? Or when you're feeling so rushed that you can't even be still enough to make a decision? God is always here always beckoning, always in love, always forgiving, always forgiving. Amen.